You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Welcome back to the Loop Podcast. I'm Dr. Sanam Zahidi, your host for today's episode, which is the first episode of our season three in-depth review series, where we have in-depth conversations with esteemed faculty from around the world. I also have another one of our co-hosts with me, Dr. Brian Basiri. Hey, Brian. Hey, everyone. How's everyone doing? <laughs> our focus for today's discussion is on hair restoration, and I'm really excited to introduce my special guest and close friend, Dr. Kristen Aliano Messina. She's a plastic surgeon in Plano, Texas, at Beyond Beautiful. Welcome, Dr. Aliano Messina. I know Hi. all of <laughs> Hi. I know all about you, but can you please share with everyone else a little bit about yourself and your journey? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I'm originally from Long Island in New York. Uh, I went to Cornell University for college and then went to medical school at the State University of New York at Stony Brook on Long Island. I initially started off my residency training as a general surgery resident at Stony Brook. I did my intern year at Stony Brook in general surgery, uh, and then I did a two-year research fellowship in plastic surgery at the Long Island Plastic Surgical Group. I then went back to Stony Brook for my second year of general surgery. And after that, I transferred to the Integrated Plastic Surgery Residency Program at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. And I completed my training in 2019. A few months after finishing residency, my husband and I moved to the Dallas area. And I'm currently now in practice at Beyond Beautiful in Plano. That's awesome. What a journey. Yes. <laughs> well, it's close to graduation for the chief residents. So I'm going to ask you to think back to that very first case as an attending. You know, the anxiety you had the night before, the day of. What did you do to fight those jitters? And looking back now, is there anything you could have done to make you more prepared for that very first case? You know, I'm somebody who by nature always over-prepares. In fact, my second grade teacher told my mom that I studied too much. And so that's been a trait that I've had my entire life, whether it was with education or with anything related to patients. So I applied that to preparing for the very first case that I did. And so for me, that preparation included reviewing the exact surgical plan, reviewing the patient's photos, drawing on the photos and making notations to myself. I do hang up photos in the operating room when relevant. So that helps. I also reviewed the patient's chart and the relevant anatomy as well. And so for me, just constantly thinking about and perseverating about minute details is what helps me really prepare. And it was very helpful because at the time I was at another practice with another plastic surgeon, and uh, he also came in and assisted me and primarily retracted the whole time. So it was nice to have an assistant who knew what to anticipate. Be honest, did you get any sleep the night before? You know, I honestly don't remember, but I probably was very nervous. So I probably let myself sleep as best as I could while also having, you know, anticipatory jitters. Nice. That's good. There are a lot of residents that are finishing up training and they're looking for attending jobs for the first time ever. What advice do you have for those people that are looking for jobs right now? So I would like to say that uh, the advice that I'm going to give is not something that I ever heard at any lecture or talk that I went to at different conferences when I was as a resident. This was really what I'm about to say is something that I learned only after 
leaving residency. And that was, I think it's very important for people to do a personal inventory of themselves and to figure out what their goals, values, and ideals are for a particular position. Because I think it's very important that you find a position that aligns with what it is that's important to you and what it is that you need in a particular practice that will help you get to where you want to be. I think something to consider is that 80% of young plastic surgeons leave the first position that they have. And I think it's more common for people of our generation because we're less likely to go out on our own if we're going into private practice and starting our own practice. So that means we're working with other people and their values and ideals may not match up with ours. And so that's when different situations can arise that can be difficult. So I think it's important to figure out what's important to you and then try to find an opportunity that matches up with what you value as important. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Well, bringing the focus back to our topic for hair restoration, Dr. Aliana Messina, what are some of the causes of hair loss? There are a multitude of reasons for hair loss. One of the most common reasons is androgenetic alopecia or hereditary hair loss, but there are also a variety of different medical conditions that can contribute to hair loss, such as alopecia areata, which is an autoimmune condition, iron deficiency, thyroid disorders. Other causes include things like trauma, surgery, menopause, pregnancy and childbirth, and stress. So what type of workup would you do? I mean, if it's stress-related, obviously getting an ample history and really talking to them about what's going on in their life. And if it's you know something like thyroid, you probably want to get some lab work. Do you do that typically? The way that I approach patients is by first bringing them in. And as you said, you know, taking a very thorough history, doing a complete physical exam that's relevant to their hair loss concerns. And also part of that history includes talking to them about their family history, since hair loss does run in families. Most of the men that come in with concerns for hair loss have male pattern baldness. So this is the hair loss that is slowly progressive, often begins when somebody is younger, gets worse over time, and they often report a family history. Usually for these patients, no additional workup is needed because based upon their history, family history, and physical exam, it's very clear that it's androgenetic alopecia. And at that point, it's very straightforward to go on to treatment. But for any male patient or any female patient that has potentially concerns of underlying medical conditions, those need to be identified and treated first. So generally, when a female patient comes to me, while I know that they could have female pattern hair loss. There's also a chance that it could be medically related. So for my patients uh, that are female, I usually always begin with some type of a medical workup just to make sure that there is nothing underlying that could be contributing. So that might include referring them to a dermatologist where that dermatologist might do a scalp biopsy as well as some lab work. Depending upon the person with whom I'm working, sometimes I'll go ahead and order basic labs first, such as a CBC a CMP, thyroid panel, and iron panel, and then pass on those results to the dermatologist. But sometimes other dermatologists like to do all of that themselves. And then some patients do require evaluation by an endocrinologist, depending upon what we find with some of that workup. But once the underlying cause has been identified and treated, and they've been cleared to proceed with treatment, then they come back to me. And then I start helping them with the more plastic surgery related aspects of treating their hair loss. So let's say you ruled out all the endocrine causes and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, and a patient comes to you. How do you approach your treatment options for hair loss? 
Absolutely. So it obviously depends on what the extent and the severity of their hair loss is, because some patients, when they come in, you know that the only way that you're going to really achieve what that patient is looking for is through a hair transplantation. But especially for female patients, hair transplantation is not always the answer. So I utilize what I call the hair restoration ladder, which is basically a variety of different treatments that can help them to achieve whatever their goal is for whatever degree of hair loss they have. So at the very bottom of that ladder includes uh, supplements such as Nutrafol vitamins, which are uh, medical grade products that can help to uh, promote hair growth. Um, And I tell patients that they have to take them consistently for three to six months in order to really promote, you know, additional hair growth. Then building upon that, there are certain thickening shampoos and conditioners that can help to enhance the appearance of hair. And obviously this works if primarily somebody has hair to thicken. You know, if somebody is a Norwood 6, this is not necessarily going to help them. So again, the exact treatment plan is tailored to the individual patient. And then going from there, other options include light therapy, and PRP treatments with or without hydrofacial Caraviv, and then lastly, a hair transplantation. So some patients may benefit from some of the bottom rungs of that ladder, and then other patients may benefit from hair transplantation and everything below it. Great. So Dr. Aliana, I have a question, and this mm-hmm. is might be a little unconventional, but thankfully I don't need any hair for receding or balding, but I have some patchy areas on my mm-hmm. beard. Do you think PRP or some hair loss treatments for for beard, not loss, I guess, lack of starting growth, I guess, ever? And you can <laughs> is that is that and feel free, it. you can charge him for this extra consultation. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, no charge for you, um, but Thanks. yes, you're welcome. Uh, PRP can work for not only the scalp but also the beard area as well. Many individuals have sparse or missing hair. So sometimes introducing PRP can help to stimulate some of those follicles to grow hair. In our practice, we often will pair a hydrofacial Caraviv with PRP for the scalp. So something similar can be done with a hydrofacial treatment to exfoliate and cleanse the skin of the face and then follow that up with a PRP treatment as well. Okay. So true story. Two days ago, I did PRP to my beard at our resident Mm -hmm. clinic. And I drew my own blood and then we had some residual left over and we micro needled it on top. Mm-hmm. And then we put lattice on top as the cherry on top. I don't know if that's going to actually work the lattice, but that was just, they, they were like, yeah, you should do it. I was like, okay. <laughs> well, that's great. You'll have to keep me posted about how yeah, that works. I'm curious if, I'm curious if it's going to even do anything. <laughs> he has a hair diary. <laughs> that's <laughs> great. <laughs> And one thing to keep in mind also with uh, people who have concerns about beards, it's important as a physician when you're evaluating these people to try to figure out what the cause is, just like when you're dealing with somebody's scalp, because it could be from scarring, it could be genetic, it could be from electrolysis, it could be, you know, perhaps somebody had a cleft lip and they have a vertical scar and there's a lack of hair there. And as a side note, hair transplantations usually do take well in scars. You know, that can be a very convenient option. Interesting. Gotcha. I know a lot of patients ask about Nutrafol vitamins. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? You touched up on it a little bit. Yes. So as I mentioned, they are medical grade vitamins that contain natural ingredients. And I should preface this by saying I have no interest in Nutrafol at all. It's just something that I happen to 
recommend to my patients. It's available in physicians' offices and my office does carry it, but you can also buy it on Amazon as well. And they have different formulations. Uh, they have one for men, they have one for premenopausal women, and then they have a women's balance, which is for postmenopausal women. So some of the ingredients vary depending upon which formulation somebody purchases. But for example, in the men's, there is saw palmetto, which is a DHT blocker and dihydroxytestosterone or DHT. It plays a very big role in hair loss. So that's where the saw palmetto can benefit. There's also ashwagandha, which is an adaptogen to stress and marine collagen, which provides some of the building blocks for hair as well. And one thing to consider is, as I touched on previously, you know, one of the causes of hair loss in women can be menopause. And the reason why that happens is because while estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone are all decreasing, the estrogen and progesterone decrease a lot more quickly than the testosterone. So postmenopausal women do have an abundance of testosterone. And then that presents itself with a widening part and a receding hairline. And so there is the saw palmetto in the women's balance version to help with that particular situation. Good to know. So what are some considerations for Rogaine or Propecia? Yes. So Rogaine is available over the counter. Um, it's a topical product. Um, I usually recommend the foam to patients because some of the other formulations are more watery and can get in their eyes. Rogaine has to be used consistently on a daily basis. And I forgot to mention Rogaine and Propecia earlier when we were talking about the the latter, but that is something that can also be utilized either early on when addressing somebody with mild hair loss or in conjunction with other treatments if somebody has been getting hair transplantation or has had one already. Um, the biggest side effects with Rogaine are folliculitis and scalp irritation. So those are common reasons why people stop using it. Um, and then with regard to Propecia, it is a prescription medication. It is only FDA approved for men. It should never be used by any woman before menopause. And of course, it's not FDA approved in women in general, but I think there's a warning on it that says women should not really handle the product. With Propecia, it has to be taken daily, but there are side effects that often cause men to not feel comfortable with taking it. And those include side effects such as fatigue, gynecomastia, impotence, and sexual dysfunction. So that's something that's really important to discuss with patients if you're thinking about prescribing it to them. I see. And then how do you structure your PRP treatments for hair loss? Like what system do you use? And would you structure it differently for the scalp versus the beard? So there are a variety of different systems out there that can be utilized for PRP. I've used two different ones in my year plus of being in practice. One of them is Eclipse, and then the other one is Easy PRF. Easy PRF is the one that I currently used. It's a platelet-rich fibrin, so it produces a more concentrated type of PRP. There's less yield, but like I said, it is more concentrated. So I generally do the PRP treatments once a month for the first four months, then six months later, and then at least on a yearly basis afterwards. And I've read some studies that demonstrate that it's important for patients to continue with that yearly maintenance. One thing that I also tell my patients is that with hair loss, there is a lot of maintenance, just like caring for our teeth or caring for our skin. There isn't a magical treatment that is just going to help get rid of the problem once and for all, especially when you're dealing with a younger male, for example, who might get a hair transplant. We can only treat what hair loss they have then. And I always counsel them that it's very possible that you're going to continue losing hair going forward. So we can't treat 
where you might lose hair in the future, but we can give you these adjunctive therapies to try to mitigate how much hair loss you might have. Somebody told me, one of my uh, friends, a dermatologist, and I was asking about PRP for the beard. And it seems like PRP with all the growth factors is, is wonderful and it can help dormant hair follicles. Whereas for the beard, if you've never had hair growth there, there are no hair follicles there. So it may not be as effective. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with that. You know, the premise of PRP is that it's going to work to stimulate dormant follicles. So if there's no follicle in that particular area of skin, then there's nothing to regenerate. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And then bringing it back to the PRP regimen, how do you incorporate Caraviva into your PRP regimen? So in my practice recently, we obtained the hydrofacial Caraviva treatment and there are different ways that you can structure it. But the way that I do it is I have patients come in once a month for the first three months for a hydrofacial Caraviva. So they will come in for hydrofacial Caraviva and then two weeks later, I'll do their first PRP treatment. And then two weeks later, they'll get their second hydrofacial Caraviva and then two weeks later, their second PRP and so on. So by the end of those first four months, they've had three hydrofacial Caraviva treatments and four PRP treatments. The nice thing about the hydrofacial Caraviva is that when patients get that procedure, they also go home with a little spray bottle for peptides that they can spray on their scalp. And so they do that at home on a daily basis. I tell them to not use it for about three days after they've had a PRP injection because it is contraindicated against open wounds. And while little injection sites are not necessarily an open wound, I'm really cautious and conservative in my practice. So I just don't want people to have any type of complication as much as possible. And for those of you who don't know, hydrofacial Caraviva, as I mentioned, is a special treatment that utilizes the hydrofacial machine. It usually takes about a half an hour to an hour, depending upon how much of the scalp is being treated. First part of the process is exfoliating and cleansing the scalp. And then the second part is infusing different peptides. Nice. Now, before we move on to hair transplant, I have one more question about PRP, because this came up while I was actually doing it a couple of days ago, and I was getting various responses and I'm still not really sure. So after you draw the blood and you spin in the centrifuge Mm -hmm. and you aspirate the plasma only, Mm -hmm. How long do you have to inject it? I mean, Dr. Google says four hours. My derm buddy says do it as fast as you can before it clots. And then some other person said, oh, you got the whole day. It doesn't matter. Yes. So I don't really know. <laughs> yes. So the particular system that I use, there are actual instructions on the package insert that says it has to be used relatively quickly. And the reason for that is because it will coagulate or congeal, yeah. and then you won't be able to use it anymore. So That's generally you do. Yeah. So generally it's best to just use it as quickly as possible, okay. but look at the particular instructions for the particular system that you're using, because their PRP system may have certain additives that will prevent oh, the coagulation from occurring. Got it. Okay. All right. Now let's move on to hair transplant. What's the difference between a follicular unit transplant and a follicular unit extraction? Sure. So follicular unit transplantation or FUT is the older of the two models. It's also known as the strip method. So this is a procedure in which the surgeon literally removes a strip of skin from the donor site, which is often in the occipital part of the scalp, since those are hairs that are generally with us for life. And from there, the removed strip of scalp gets dissected to produce the individual grafts that are going to be then placed back into the recipient site. Follicular unit extraction is a little bit of a different process. With FUE, which is newer, 
the individual uh, follicular units are removed and there isn't a very large visible scar with that technique. So it allows for people to wear their hair much shorter in the donor site than they would with FUT since patients often will need to wear their hair a little bit longer back there to cover the scar. Do you offer both or do you pick and choose which patient you offer, which one? So I think it depends upon an individual's practice. Uh, There are some people that have been in practice for 30, 35 plus years, and they primarily do the FUT method. There are other people that do both. Um, In our practice, we primarily offer FUE. Um, And there are pros and cons to both options, uh, just like there are for so many other uh, procedures in plastic surgery. Some people will tell you that with FUT, you get greater number of high quality graphs than you do with the FUE method. Other people say, no, if you know how to utilize your FUE method well, you'll still get a large number of high quality graphs. I think it just depends upon the individual surgeon as well and what his or her comfort level is and how efficiently they can use the system that they're using. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Now, what's the difference between neograft and artist? So neograft and artist are both different hair transplantation devices that are owned by Venus Concepts, which produces a lot of different medical devices. And you can actually follow both neograft and artist on Instagram at Vero Hair. So they post frequently about both of those different options. Artist is a robot It is only FDA approved for male patients with short, straight, black, or brown hair. So it's not applicable to a wide variety of patients. The robotic arm harvests the hair, and then it can also be utilized for site making and implantation. Neograft, on the other hand, is a semi-automated device, and it basically creates little punches in the back of the scalp where the donor site is, and then sucks up each punch. And then the technicians can help start to to sort the hair from there. With Artis, while the robotic arm does make the little punches, you have to remove each individual punch by hand. So it's a little bit of a different process there. Neograft can be applicable to men and women, people with long and short hair. And it's also much more versatile with regard to different um, ethnicities and different hair textures. Interesting. So what are some considerations for incorporating this into your practice? I'm sure the robot is big cost. And more than that, if you have a tech, that process can be laborious and tedious and it might take too much of your time. What would you say about all that? Absolutely. I should say that while in the past I've used artists in my current practice, we only have neograft. I think one of the biggest considerations is that I think there's a lot of, and you alluded to this, time, energy, and money that really go into having hair restoration as part of a plastic surgery practice, especially if somebody decides to get the artist robot. You know, it's a robot, so it's a more expensive medical device. And then there's a lot of other ancillary costs that go into obtaining it because there's a special supply, special chair, Mm -hmm. other types of medical equipment that are needed in order to do those procedures. With Neograft, you still need specific supplies in addition to the Neograft device to be able to do that procedure in your office. And one thing to keep in mind as well is you do often need technicians to help with the procedures because it is exactly as you said, laborious and it's time intensive. Unless you have people in-house in your practice that are trained to do that, you often have to bring in technicians from the outside to assist you. Of course, there's costs associated with that as well. Interesting. Thanks. 
Well, this was all great. Thank you so much, Dr. Aliana Messina, for being here today and helping us all get a little better grasp on hair restoration and definitely for helping Brian with his beard situation. Oh, well, thank you so well, much for having me. To it's be determined, to be determined. <laughs> I'll keep you guys posted. For everyone on the podcast, please make sure to follow Brian's Beard Hair Diary. But as we're recording this episode, we're approaching Match Week. And I was curious, Dr. Aliana Messina, if you had any final thoughts or advice for the medical students listening right now? Yes. So I know Match Week comes with a great deal of trepidation, anxiety, excitement. And I think one thing to consider is that if let's say you open that envelope and it's not exactly what you wanted, don't feel like it's the end of the world. You will get to where you want to be. Just stay motivated, stay focused, and stay determined, and you'll be able to achieve whatever you want. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure and subscribe, rate, and review us. We will continue bringing you weekly episodes addressing your life and education in plastic surgery. Follow us on Instagram at The Loop Podcast to get in the loop. Thank you.